this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay. Thanks, folks. If you were part of the union. Yeah. I mean, I guess you are, but are you a part of the union? or? Are you- <laughs> Yes. Were you like the Jimmy Hoffa of this union? No, 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 no. No Hoffa's here. Uh, You would have been able to vote on this episode. We put up a poll. And we had people vote for our second diamond episode of the year. A diamond episode, which we started this year, is when we go back and look at a record that was a big seller, like 10 million copies. Now, Pearl Jam's 10, who we're going to talk about, it didn't actually reach 10 million until like the 2000s. Oh, wow. Yeah. It sold a lot, um, you know, in the 90s, but not 10 million in the 90s. I didn't realize that. It was a slow grower, actually. It didn't even, I don't think it even got onto the charts until 1992, even though it was released in 91. That's the episode we're going to be doing. We did our poll. This was the runaway winner. I mean, it wasn't even close. I thought that there was going to be, you know, debate and and <laughs> some sort of, you know, maybe a tie. Maybe we'd have a runoff. Nope. This 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 garnered more votes than the other two picks combined. Dude, dudes in their forties like their Pearl Jam. <laughs> so the, what they didn't like, the other options were Green Day's Dookie. And Matchbox 20's yourself or someone like you. Now, I thought for sure Matchbox 20 was going to win this because. Really? Yeah, because that's the least obvious choice of what we would like. Oh, yeah. I would have figured that Green Day kind of crossed. Like it cut across enough people that it might have won. You know what I mean? Like. Popular second choice. Sure. Well, we have our winner. It was it was uh, twenty, uh, roughly sixty percent of the vote went to Pearl Jam, and then the other two split like twenty twenty. So that's pretty impressive. And I think from the comments, we'll see that people that maybe we didn't expect to like Pearl Jam are what pushed us over the edge. For example, really? Ian McIver said Pearl Jam is the only album in my collection of these three. Never took a dive into Matchbox 20. Dookie is my thoughts on the album and the band. <laughs> well played. Okay. Uh, and Cabbage, Mr. Cabbage, who joined us recently. Yeah. He said, I'm with Jeremy. Matchbox 20 is Dookie. I'd rather listen to Train. And Jeremy said, I'm not agreeing with you concerning green day but this is hilarious i'd put matchbox 20 in the dookie category first um wow so i don't know shit darren leach said i love 10 and dookie but would love to hear our overlord's thoughts on 32 years of 10 hope they cover the b-sides as well some amazing b-sides they still play live today guess what darren 
I gave Jay the B-sides. Darren, you're asking a lot here, bud. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's relevant because one of the B-sides to this is was a huge single and is still like a, a live staple in their cattle in, in their live performances. That's not that doesn't happen in, <laughs> at all. Well, first of all, there's hardly ever B-sides anymore. You release yeah. stuff digitally. There's rarely a B-side. Yep. But I mean, you know, the Beatles had some hits with B-sides and the Stones, but that's going back decades. Um, Phil Hampton said, I had all three albums, but Pearl Jam is the only band that worked for me. Jeremy Mend also said, if PJ wins, please focus on the original release, not the soulless redux. I generally don't care a lot about production and mixing, but F Brendan O'Brien. <laughs> and then there was discussion of that. Now, I, I listened to my original copy of, of the album. Did I you? didn't even know there was a redux, and I'm kind of afraid to listen to it based on that comment basically you know they took the reverb out and and yeah well we'll get into that in the conversation right the record but that's what i assumed he meant richard motorman just said jam or match well it was the jam carl f went with dookie because he said it's his favorite um he said i should have voted for matchbox 20 as i've never listened to it (laughs) so he's just going to throw some chaos in there basically um Eric Peterson said, 10 has long been the album I think should be episode 1000 or a special show, but maybe it's time to get it out of the way and maybe we'll get some new listeners. We shall see. Um, unlike our last episode, I think I'll have a much easier time with the name pronunciation on this one. So hopefully I don't offend anyone. Uh, Cabbage said, no contest. Dookie is the shit. Well, Dookie was the shit in this poll. Uh Cal Bittner said, while Pearl Jam is my favorite band and Dookie is a phenomenal pop punk album, there isn't much left to say about them. Okay. Maybe there, maybe we'll have a few words. I'm going with Matchbox 20. It really isn't that bad of an album. Hang is the album standout. Nate Smith said, PJ, 10 for sure. Dookie was a banger for me, but 10 is an actual 10 album. Um, Richard Roberts said he prefers the Brendan O'Brien mix. Oof. Jim Copany, Tank Boy, said Pearl Jam's 10 is more of a harbinger of things to come from the band and Max Jet 20 were massive, but the actual album is really uneven. So for me, Green Day's Dookie is the most worthy of discussion here. The album is perfect from start to finish. The first couple subsequent albums remain from them incredibly strong as well. Jim uh, Midnight said, I interviewed Green Day shortly after Dookie came out just a few months before they exploded. That CD was my go-to in the car. But I'm voting for Pearl Jam's 10 because I can remember hearing Pearl Jam for the first time, discovering them because of the Mother Love Bone connection. I've never interviewed Pearl Jam, but I did get all their signatures on a three-song pre-album release single. That's cool. The al- This album, to me, was as important as Nirvana's Nevermind. Okay. Darren Lehman, Pearl Jam all the way. I have no need to ever hear the singles again, but the deep cuts are some of my favorite Pearl Jam songs. Uh, special shout out to release that song meant nothing to me for a long time until I got older. And now it's taken on a whole new meaning. It's also been featured prominently in a few films over the last decade. Um, <laughs> Patrick Testa said, I never followed what Mookie Blaylock did after they changed their name. Looking forward to hearing what they sound like after they sold out. Now, Jay, I'm sure you are aware of this, but Pearl Jam were named Mookie Blaylock originally. Yes. And, and that was a basketball player. 
It's kind of a, I always understood that as being maybe a transitional name. Yes. They didn't have a name, so they went with Mookie Blaylock. They ended up changing it to Pearl Jam. 10 was Mookie Blaylock's number. So that's sort of their, their, their honoring Mookie. Um, he also said when they hit, we already heard Soundgarden, Allison Chains, uh, give us two new twists in metal, which blew the heavy rock lovers collective mind. But Pearl Jam sounded different, like they could change the world. They tapped into deeper consciousness and conveyed it through the lens of two decades of rock's revolution or on 10. At the time, I thought Yellow Better was way too on the nose sonically. I detested that they released it, even though it was a B-side to Jeremy and even though everyone loved it. And classic rock radio loved it. I thought they were derailing the seismic shift they were inflicting on the world. Obviously, time erases all of that. But in 1992, I did not want the pop crowd that jumped on the Pearl Jam wave to dig their nails in and start driving the ship. It also worked out when Pearl Jam released No Code and dumped the wave riders off at the nearest Seven Mary Creed of Mud Island. Seven Mary Creed of Mud Island. Mud wow. with two D's. Of course. That's that sounds like the worst island uh, after fi- <laughs> after the Firefest Island. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like hell. Um, that's an interesting point about. We'll talk about Pearl Jam's um, decision making around this album, and then afterwards, as we get into this, do you remember when you first heard Pearl Jam, Jay? Yeah, it would have been. So the album came out what October? August of ninety nine of ninety one. August. It would have been that upcoming winter some at some point, December, January, okay. I think. Um I think it was the video for a live. Mm-hmm. May have been uh I had some friends that were into Nirvana and, and Nevermind and this at the same time. So it was sort of either that video or I'd heard it from them. Uh, but Alive was the first song I heard. When you guessing hear? Alive was the first song I heard, but I don't remember like connecting it, like going, oh, what's that band? I just kind of heard it either on the yeah. radio or, or saw the video because fall of 91, spring of 92, I was rocking Guns N' Roses, um, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. I was listening to led zeppelin like i was into eric johnson like a lot of guitar rock um and then i think what happened was when i went to college in fall of 92 which is kind of when pearl jam sort of exploded because well it was uh, spring summer with jeremy uh the jeremy video i think it was like the fall when i went to college i was like okay now this is everywhere and you know, you couldn't escape Pearl Jam at that point. Um, but I never bought it on CD when it came out. The first Pearl Jam album I actually ever bought was Vitology. When it meaning I new. Um, okay. I I because I, I, I liked Pearl Jam, but I wasn't a huge fan uh, the way that some people were, where they were buying it on, the, you know, as soon as the album came out. So yeah, I got I got this pretty pretty soon i was also in a high school band at the time so like mm-hmm. we were trying to like it was kind of funny like starting to learn these bands and try to play their songs and like <laughs> i'll just say nirvana was way easier to play or at least you know 
feel like you were playing correctly than these songs were. I remember a lot of like really bad attempts to play alive. I I should disclose <laughs> that for a short period of time I wasn't a Nirvana or a, excuse me a Pearl Jam cover band. Um with uh, of course you need to disclose that yeah i with our former lead singer of our band keith uh it was it was keith and then some other gentlemen they their bass player departed and i came in and played bass um for one gig uh the band was called the cover band was called rvm which is abbreviation of rearview mirror from the second album versus i will say some of these songs on the surface sound easy, but when you actually break them down, like for example, yeah. the bass playing on Jeremy is actually fairly interesting because he's using a 12 string bass. So he's doing a lot of weird things on that. Don't song. jump the gun here. Don't jump okay. the gun. All right. Just, just putting it out there. Uh, as you mentioned, this is a diamond episode. So this obviously has sold 10 million. And in fact, it sold 13 million as of 2013. And I'm sure with adding in streams and all that kind of stuff and downloads, it's probably, um, it probably paid, I think they paid off the recording is what I'm saying. It's probably, uh, yeah, you know it's what? In the, I mean, it's in the it, black. It kind of makes sense that it took longer now that I think about it. Cause you, I guess just coming from like a pop culture standpoint, like you see, for example, Nirvana stuff everywhere, you know, of kids where, mm-hmm. Nirvana t-shirts now that I know who the band is. It's just so ubiquitous and like part of our culture. Whereas Pearl Jam kind of isn't like, I don't know that like your standard, not to go ask my, my 13 year old, but I don't think your standard 13 year old know the name Pearl Jam. No, but I agree with you. They'll know Nirvana, yep. which is like, I think just hitting me now. Cause I always thought of this band as basically being like one A and one B, you know, Nirvana in them. They're the two big nineties right. bands, and I don't I don't know that that's the case now. And that's uh brings to mind the Neil Young quote, it's better to burn out than fade away. Uh, yeah. you know, Nirvana left a very short discography, but a very tragic story that people can um, you know, revisit. Whereas Pearl Jam sort of has they have their niche. They're essentially the alternative rock Grateful Dead. Like they can tour and play shows and people will follow them around and they'll just play like a couple big shows at stadiums and you know three four nights in a row and you know they got that going for them some backstory on this i'm sure a lot of people know i just want to put it out there so for this record it's eddie vetter on vocals stone gossard on rhythm guitar mike mccready on lead guitar dave cruzen on drums and jeff ament on bass. It was recorded and produced by Rick Parashar. Um, and it was mixed by Tim Palmer, mastered by Bob Ludwig. The history, of course, is that Jeff and Stone had been in Mother Love Bone. Andy Wood died in 1990. And they had we were just about to put out the mother love bone debut album and it, he passes away. Um, so they're like lost for a while. In fact, they didn't even talk to each other for a number of months because they were both like in such a, a rut after that happened. Stone ended up playing with Mike McCready, who had been in a band called shadow and they started playing just like writing riffs together. 
And McCready was the one who said, you should get, you should talk to Jeff again. So they put together some demos and got together with Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, who they were friends with. And they recorded, um, I want to say like five songs. Um, they were all instrumentals. And um, put it out there. It was called the Stone Gossard Demos 91 tape. And they were just looking for a lead singer. Like, that's crazy to me, is that they had been on Sub Pop with Green River. And then, um, Ap- what, what, what was the label? Capricorn was the label for... Um, for uh, Mother Love Bone. So they had like multiple record deals and now they're out like trying to find a lead singer with a demo tape. Just going, you know, like that's a strange situation to be in. But it ended up getting to Eddie Vedder in San Diego through Jack Irons, who was the former drummer of Red Hot Chili Peppers and was apparently friends with those guys. So he gave him the demo. He recorded some vocals over top of it and gave it back and they were like we want to fly you up for an audition and um out of that they wrote alive once black footsteps which is a b-side um and is or that might be it that might be the the four that was the main songs that he wrote the lyrics to um they went into the studio in March. He got there in October of 1990. This is I, I I didn't realize how fast this all happened. So he gets there in October of 1990. They Dave Cruz joins the band because obviously Matt Cram was busy with Soundgarden. Um, they get the demos to Epic Records and Epic signs them. So they start recording at London Bridge Studios in Seattle in March with Rick Parishar. So this is March. The album's coming out in August. And they're yeah. just getting together to record, not getting together, but they're finally getting in the studio. But because they had spent like, you know, all the fall and winter playing together, they got it done pretty quickly. Most of them were done in only a few takes. Even Flo was the only one that took a number of takes because Cruzen was having difficulty matching Cameron's drumming on the original demo. So it took like 50 takes for him to get it right, mm. which we've been in the studio. That happens. Sometimes a particular part drives someone nuts and they, or they speed up and slow down or whatever. And it just gets, takes forever to get it right. He ended up leaving the band once they recorded it. Cause he had to go into rehab for alcoholism. So that's uh, when Dave Abruziz comes in. Is that how you say his last name? Abruzzi? Abruzzi? Sure. I should know that because it's Italian. I should know how to pronounce that. (laughs) Yeah, you don't get a pass on this one. Um, So then they went to England to do the mixing with Tim Palmer. And uh, comes out in August. Well, uh, I should back up a second. The single for Alive was released in July. So that's when the video starts playing on MTV. Is summer of 91 is when you okay. start seeing the Alive video, which is different. It's the music slightly different than the one that's on the album because it's like a live version of that song that was mixed to be, it was mixed differently. Okay. Um, I believe. Let's see. Let me double check that. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's very close, but. Yeah. 
So they ended up after that releasing um, not until the next until the next April, Even Flow as the second single. Jeremy was released as the third single in August 1992, and Oceans was released as the fourth single in 1992 in December. The label wanted to put Blackout as a single, and the band refused. They said, we want this to stay an album track, We d- but radio stations ended up playing it anyways. Um, and then, of course, as mentioned, Yell Ledbetter, which was a single or a B-side to the Jeremy single, ended up getting airplay as well. Um, so you can't really uh, can't really control what people are going to play, at least at this point. You, like Think about it. Radio DJs are like, well, people really like this B-side. We're going to play that. Not like this tightly controlled, you know, pop format that dominates radio today. Um, it won a bunch of awards, uh, both at the time and in retrospect, but it did not actually get all positive reviews when it came out. We can get into that later when we talk wow. about our reviews of this record. Um, so do you current? I went before we get into this. Do you currently own Pearl Jam albums or are they a band that you don't like? you listen to but it's not something that you're like seek out yeah i mean i still own this on cd i own um up to up through vitology i mean i got all three of those records the day they came out but you except get- for this one the set the verses and vitology i got the day they came out got it and but you haven't bought whatever. you didn't buy no code or by or a yield or no i lost interest with the band after vitology it was sort of the end for me Interesting. Got off the train. <laughs> That's the opposite for me, but we'll we'll get into that. Uh, all right. We we're going to talk about a Diamond album, one of the one thousand and one albums you must hear before you die, according to the book and the five hundred greatest albums of all time by Rolling Stone. Is it? Is it still thirty two later? Thirty two years later. Jay, tell me one thing you liked about Pearl Jam's ten. Uh, I really love the bass on this record, and I think it's more than just a bass player. As I revisit it and really dig into it, it is the f- absolute foundation, not only rhythmically to the record, but also melodically. Um, if you listen to the majority of the tracks here, they are bass line driven. Uh, the guitar riffs mimic the bass parts, and the reason I and I'm assuming that is because the guitar riffs are also unconventional. They don't tend to be like power chords um, and then sort of melodies interspersed with that. They tend to be like these long lines, like kind of single note with, with bins. I mean, you just think about the, the riff to alive is a good example, which you don't typically just come up with those style riffs on your own and guitar. So they really sound like, either inspired by bass or made together, but they're very like, even the guitar parts are tend to be the main ones, the main riffs and stuff tend to be very bass centric and how they're written and thought about. I was also, so, so there's that going on. I love then how that opens up for the guitars to be rhythmic at times or, you know, sort of dynamic and, um, melodic um they they kind of between the two guitar players they can kind of float and decide what they want to do um which i think is really 
a sign you got a good foundation for you know the sound of a band uh i was also kind of taken by how much the bass supports the vocal in these songs there's a lot of verses where the reason why they're in courses the reason why they're so strong is when you break it down he's he's playing like a harmony underneath the vocal or the vocal singing on top a harmony on top of the bass line and the guitars can then like i said like be out on their own they can they can sync up and make it sound beefy or they can kind of space out and do something like as a counter rhythm or a counter melody or just do like a wah-wah solo like there's a ton of space that they have then to go you know do things which i think is really cool now this formula isn't the first time um that they've done this i mean a lot of the mother lobo and stuff uses mm -hmm. that type of formula too and a lot of the uh, temple of the dog stuff does as well and it, i think it was this list and where it became really concrete in my understanding that this is very bass driven like the writing of this um i'm not saying like you wrote a bass line and then they played around and i'm saying it sounds like a band that's like playing together and they're realizing like wow it's a really cool bass part let's let's work with that um he also does a lot of really interesting harmonics and like little like high parts to accent things even sometimes where he just pops in and it just accents the vocal briefly um which you know in this visit i really picked up on i think previously like i didn't either understand how that worked didn't hear it didn't understand it but with some time i can pull things apart easier understand a little better what's going on and yeah i was just really blown away by jeff immense bass play on this record um I think the, I think vocally, obviously this is a groundbreaking record vocally. I mean, it, it sets a whole style of singing that had never been hear, heard before. Um, I think the baritone aspect of his voice is the thing that got most, you know, mm -hmm. borrowed and stolen that we're most familiar with. But I think I was more taken with like how much range is on this record. I mean, you just hear it. it the first track in the album once you know he covers so much rain between high and low and all kinds of emotion you know you hear him really like almost screaming like belting it out his voice breaking a little bit in that song it's just um i think was a interesting and in like my memory of it is all about that baritone kind of marble mouth approach that like I remember and other bands took, mm -hmm. but I think I was impressed with how much more there is on this record. Um, vocally going on. Uh, I like his higher voice actually quite a bit and you hear more of it on this record than I remember hearing later. And it's just really dynamic. Like he is like um, covering a full spectrum of tones, sounds, emotions from quiet whispers to you know full-on belting it out throughout this whole record so obviously you know the vocal is huge on this record um i'm a huge andrew wood fan and i think some of these songs would have been really cool to hear him sing on but also you can hear on this record like because of the how much he emotes 
um, Eddie Vedder emotes that you can hear like why this was so much more commercially successful than probably the low phone ever would have been. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's the other big takeaway I had from it. I'm a big Stone Gossard fan. So, you know, he's playing on this record. It's fantastic. You know, if you're familiar with his playing and Mother Lebone and Brad, you know, the types of things he does on this record are um, these really cool grooves locked up with Jeff and Matt, but then also some cool like riffs and, and leads as well. So that's some of the stuff that worked for me. What worked for you? Well, it was a kind of a surreal experience going back and listening to this because as soon as I put it on and heard that, that um, fretless bass sound that opens and closes the record, like yeah. it transported me back to, you know, listening to this back on back in the nineties. I have a greater appreciation for it now because I understand the bigger picture of it. Um, one of the things I didn't really know was that there's actually like a song cycle going on on the record. So a, a live once and then the B side footsteps are like one, two and three of a story. Yep. Um, which I never knew that I knew, you know, a live there was, all this stuff about it was, it was Eddie Vedder's life that he grew up with a dad that wasn't as actually his dad. And then when he was a teenager, his mom told him that his dad passed away. He never actually met him. Um, that story in alive is altered to make it semi fictional. And then once continues the story of the downfall of this person and then footsteps is his, is this person's end and I don't think I really I love the band as far as the music goes, because there is this like you mentioned, there's this groove to Jeff's playing that per- perfectly matches the way that Stone plays Stone McGosser plays guitar. I, I almost think it's funny when people talk about this is like classic rock, because I'm like, this is actually like funkier than classic rock in some respects. Like some of those guitar lines are. Yeah like chili pepper esque in some ways with the way well, that like I I never got that critique. Yeah. Classic rock critique and that it wasn't immediate when the record came out, but within the first couple of years you started to hear that sort of opinion of like essentially like comparing them to say Nirvana or this mm-hmm. sentiment of like, oh they're doing something totally new. They're punk, but you know, Pearl Jam, they're just a classic rock band. Um I didn't get it at the time. I thought maybe as I revisited it, I would understand it better. 
Um, and I understand it even less because these these riffs do not sound like any class rock no. band I've ever heard. You can maybe make the argument there's like a dual guitar attack that you may have heard with like Aerosmith, but these like I described how the riffs are constructed. That that's not how classic rock riffs are written. No. I, I guess maybe because McCready uses a wah. Yeah, that, and that's he's indebted what it comes to Jimi Hendrix and he's indebted to Steve Ray Vaughan. Yeah. And he said, you know, there's a quote about him saying that the alive solo was basically just ripping off Ace Freely. You know, when you mention those things, if you bring up Kiss in an interview, yeah. you're especially in the 90s when Kiss was not cool, that's going to tag you as as being a classic rock person. But when you listen to this record and we talk about the sound of the record in terms of the original version versus the remix, there's a lot of reverb on this record, which sounds more eighties than it does nineties in some respects because of how much reverb is on some of these songs. It has that big room feel that is not as tight as what would come. And even in comparison to their, you know, their peers at the time, it sounds different. It, but also it sounds like an album in a, in a, in a cohesive way. It doesn't sound like a collection of songs to me. Like this has a flow to it, to borrow a term that I don't think some other, some other bands had in the nineties. It has a mood. Yeah. The, that re, the reverb, whatever. I don't think it's that reverb, but out. We've, we've reviewed some albums that are way more reverb. Oh yeah. Than this is. <laughs> and it doesn't sound dated to me. It just sounds like a good, I th- you know, it's very punchy. It's easy to understand like what's going on. It's not like overly washy, but my main point is just that the reverb on this record is, I think it's important. And like, it creates this cohesive mood to the whole thing. Right. That I don't think would exist without it. And it wouldn't like songs like oceans and release would not work. No. without that atmosphere um it was brought up in the comments i i have always loved release that's always been one of my favorite pearl jam tunes it does not work if that's totally clean and Mm-mm. you know if that's stripped down the atmosphere that is built into it is what makes it such an interesting track because it has a bit of like shape-shifting movement to the to the reverb and the and the sounds that are happening and it's not well-defined. And I like that they have a delineation between there are songs which are really, really guitar-driven, have you know very specific sounds like even flow, porch, and what have you. But then they have songs that are, are much more they're loose, more open. I, I don't think some of their peers at the time, and I don't know that Pearl Jam ever did slow songs as well as they did on this record with black and release they did they've always done up-tempo mid-tempo songs really well and they tried to recapture that a little bit on you know vitology has nothing man which is kind of dour no code has off he goes which kind of sounds like a neil young song because that's at the point when they were like messing around with neil young on tour and backing him up on mirror ball and that kind of stuff but in terms of like anthemic, big, dare I say, ballads, I mean, I don't think anything tops yeah. black. Well, which... I was even thinking that Alive is almost a ballad. 
right? I mean, it's pretty. It's close. almost, but it it's it builds up at the but end. It has that appeal of a ballad, you know. Yes, and it's accessible uh, in the way a ballad is. <laughs> I call it their free bird. Yeah, because that's kind of the, the that's kind of the trajectory of that song. It starts out small, and then it ramps itself up into a frenzy, mm-hmm. which is a great uh you know live performance song if you can get that captured on tape awesome the fact that they were able to get it captured on tape is a testament to you know rick parisher and and tim palmer the mixer because a lot of bands can't capture what they do live and this band was you know getting that their first tour um they were doing a headlining tour small a small headlining tour and then they jumped on tour with the red hot chili peppers and smashing pumpkins and nirvana was going to be on the bill as well i think Mm. and one of them dropped off you know they had to open for a very they had to cut their teeth you know as a live band before a lot of people besides playing you know local shows in, in seattle and stuff like that and obviously for stone gossard and jeff amen they had already done this um, but yeah. I don't think Shadow was a huge band for Mike McCready. I don't know what Cruisin was doing. Or, well, he was out by this point. They brought in Abraziz at this point to tour. And then he ended up recording on Versus. He didn't record for this record. And then um, Eddie Vedder, as far as I know, he was in a like a local band in San Diego called Bad Radio. But I don't think that they did anything enormous. So, I mean, imagine you're Eddie Vedder. You've gone from being a a surfer bum in San Diego, and then a year later you're touring stadiums or, or, you know, opening it at like hockey arenas and stuff to 20,000 people for this record in front of the Pearl Jam or instead of in front of uh, the Chili Peppers audience. Like that's got to be pretty crazy. Right. I do want to talk about, you know, we talked about the album tracks. There are a couple of B-sides that I think are relevant to the discussion. One, obviously, is Yellow Led Better, which is the <laughs> often debated lyrically song about what exactly is he singing. I think I think that's the song that when people talk about Vetter having like a mush mouth, yeah. that's the one that they, they harp on. Yeah, and it got played a lot. I don't know why, but in, at least in Cleveland radio, like it got pounding the ground because I, because it's so hendrix i mean it's when it starts off you're like oh is this little wing And then yep. he starts he starts mumble mouthing. I didn't like I didn't even like that song at the time. I mean, I like the guitar playing on the song, sure, but I just could never take it. I still can't take it. 
and I get why, like, then it just got pounded in the ground so much on radio that uh, it may have been detrimental to them in the long run in terms of just like what the perception of them is. Like, it feels like that song for some strange reason, it's a B side. Like, (laughs) it's not overly like hooky. Nope. But like, it kind of like emphasizes all the worst parts of the band. Yeah. And it, it opens the door to the classic rock criticism. Yeah. That's the one it's like, okay. Yeah. I mean, you're playing like Hendrix. So right. You're a classic rock band. Yeah. And you know, it speaks to how hungry people were for Pearl jam once they exploded because they were willing, they were like, Oh, B side. Cool. Yeah. We'll listen to that. That's um, probably it. Of the songs it, that were, re- go ahead. Sorry. It, well, I think it, it if memory serves too, it like really picked up between waiting for um, verses to come out. The memories that it, it took a while, just it probably didn't, but time moved slower then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was like, radio was like trying to fill time and I'm wondering if uh, that was part of why this song got picked up so much. Yeah, that's a possibility. Um, because you know like i said the, the b-side or, or the, the the jeremy single gets released in um 92 and the single goes to number 21 on the mainstream rock tracks and 26 on the u.s modern rock tracks i don't know i i guess there was just a hunger like you said there was like a gap i mean it was two years before between the first record and the second record i i don't quite get it because it's 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 a fan favorite they still play it to this day but it's kind of nonsense i mean it's not nonsense there are lyrics but they change um he doesn't always sing it the same way so i don't quite get like why it had why it became so revered as opposed to my favorite pearl jam b-side and one of my top five favorite songs state of love and trust which along with breath was on the single soundtrack. Now those, those were also a part of the sessions for 10. So along with songs alone, brother, hold on just a girl and wash. And then they did a Beatles cover as well. What's the Beatles cover. I've got a feeling. Oh, okay. That was a B side in this um, era as well. Uh, yeah, you can hear. Um, so I love state of love and trust. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about that is one that sounds more like a mother love bone song than anything else, probably on 10 Two, that is not what I'm talking about works for me. Although I like that song a lot. It's one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs. However, it is not bass driven. It's guitar riff driven. Mm-hmm. And you can hear that. You want to hear the contrast of what I'm talking about. You just listen to that song and then listen to, once or alive or anything from this 10 album and there's a stark contrast between like oh guitar chord riff with like little you know sort of accents in there bass is just following along versus some of those bass riffs that i'm talking about that sort of morph into these grooves and guitar riffs that are unlike anything i'd ever heard see love and trust a really cool song it's not like groundbreaking no it's just a really solid rock song. Yes. 
the other thing, song that was a B-side, but but I'm not including it because it wasn't recorded with this group, was Dirty Frank. Do you remember that song? Did you ever hear that B-side? Mm, not sure. Um, it's a it's very funky, and it definitely sounds like a B-side. They recorded it to have a B-side for one of the um, singles. It's not a great I, song. I know. Um, I know. Breathe a bit. That is a great guitar riff like super creative mm-hmm. now footsteps is a temple of dog song correct so it was a demo that stone gossard wrote instrumental demo in 90 they ended up using it for times of trouble but it was still a demo that he gave to vetter and so eddie vetter rewrote new lyrics but because they had used it for times of trouble, they didn't want to put it on the album. So they just made it a B side because they liked what Fetter did with the lyrics. Yeah. The Temple of the Long song is way better. <laughs> right. Well, that's because it's that's a completed song. Yeah. But I just mean like the vocal concept, melody, delivery, everything. It's really interesting to be able to hear the contrast between the, the two. Breath was a, a leftover Mother Love Bone song that didn't get recorded. Oh, okay. That's what I, I just read that be, of uh, Mike McCready said about that song. And um, we're going to get into what we what doesn't work. Of the material that works best, what is the, what I'm going to ask you, what material doesn't work well for you on the record? Like what doesn't hold up? Yeah. I don't like Porch. Porch to me represents another side of the band that it, I find annoying. It's got that Dave Matthews style delivery. I realize Dave Matthews didn't invent it, but he, to me, when I hear Eddie Vedder singing like that, that fast kind of rapid fire thing. It's not going to be any middle anymore. Yeah. That Dave Matthews picked up on and many of other people. Uh, it also, it's a little bit more like guitar riff driven. It's got the feel to me of like where they go and versus and Vitalogy. It's starting to like, turn that corner which i think is just an infinitely less interesting sound than the rest of this record interesting that's the only song that eddie vetter wrote for by himself for the album he wrote yeah. the music as well as the lyrics so this is my assumption you just kind of validated it 
here's what I'm going to assume happened with this band and why I became less interested in them. This album, it was written by Mike McCready, Stone Gossard, and Jeff Ament, like grooving the hell out of these, most of these songs, which you, it's just, you hear that you just hear like a mm-hmm. chemistry and a dynamic that is just, you can't re- replicate it. Right. It's wholly unique, very human, exciting. You know, it's got all the elements. It grooves, it's anthemic, it's dramatic, it's got everything. I didn't even know that Eddie Vedder wrote Porch, but it makes sense why. I think as the band goes forward, he starts writing more. They stop writing as a three piece that way. And it just stops working for me. I might even put the hot take as like Eddie Vedder might be the least talented songwriter of the three of the three of them and like probably writes most of the songs now. So, or at least for me, it's he's the least interesting. I mean, his vocals can be amazing, but just as a band, it's just not the same if those three guys aren't sort of grooving these songs out and figuring them out. Um, and obviously the drums were a huge part of it. You know, if it was formed around Matt Cameron or Dave, um, Dave Cruz, and I don't know how much each of those drummers played in, but the drums are hugely important as well. So that's a little piece of the puzzle into like why this band stops working for me as they progress forward and why this album stands out amongst their catalog for me as being like so distinct and right. Well, the band said it themselves at the time there was an interview and McCready said like, they didn't really write as a band before, you know, they were just guys who had, you know, some demos and put it together and recorded. So when they got together to do verses, they were literally starting fresh as a, as like a new band. And so if you look on verses, there's no credits. It just is all music by Pearl Jam. It isn't until then the next one, Vetter has like four songwriting credits. And to his credit, some of the popular songs on that album are his. Like Better Man is a song that Vetter wrote on his own, which is one of the biggest singles that they ever had. Mm-hmm. It still is played on classic rock radio today, along with Alive and Even Flow and Jeremy. I think more so than, although, I mean, there's stuff on verses that still gets played as well. But I I think what didn't work for me looking back on this record, it's not that it's there's anything that's terrible. His lyrical approach can be a little on the nose. Um, it's yeah. a very dark record when you actually listen and analyze all the lyrics. There's mm-hmm. a lot of lyrics about like suicide and death and garden is about a soldier coming back from the Gulf war, which I, I had to re- sort of like recontextualize when this came out, like they were recording it while the Gulf war was happening in 1991. Oh yeah. So he wrote a song about a friend of his, who's, who's um, I think it was his brother was returning from the Gulf war. You know, Deep has a reference to sinking the needle deep, obviously a reference, I believe, to heroin. And there was a lot of talk about the heroin resurgence in the early 90s, especially with regards to the Seattle bands. Um, Jeremy is about it's 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 like a a mash together of two different school shootings. Um, One is of a kid who committed suicide in front of his class named Jeremy Dale. And that happened in 1990, I think, 1990 or 91. And then the other part of it is a shooting that happened at Eddie Vedder's school when he was a kid. 
uh, when he was in high school, a kid shot up one of the classrooms. There was nobody in the classroom. He just brought his gun and started shooting into the classroom. And then you have the Alive trilogy. Even Flow is about, if you read those lyrics, about homelessness. And then all the, there's not a positive, there's like not any levity to this record. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is a heavy record when you listen to it and pay attention to the lyrics. Um, yeah, it feels very... Um... Uh, not I don't want to say not timeless. I'm just trying to think as a you know a guy approaching his fifties, like outside of nostalgia. When I want to get this dark and be confronted with like the on the nose lyrics and like right these topics, which are some are deeply personal that I I can't necessarily relate to, but even like the school shooting thing, like not that I've don't want to hear a song about that, but just like it doesn't always seem like incredibly relevant to my life right now for whatever reason. Well, the, and the way that the, some of the lyrics are on this record and stuff, I don't know. Just trying two to think things, of a time when I'm like, right, really want to get other than nostalgia, like when I really would want to listen to this. There's two things working against this record. One is that it was way overplayed. I never need to hear Even Flow or Alive or Jeremy on the radio again. Like, I just don't, I don't need it. I've, Jeremy's I know every me, note. Huh? I, that, that's the one I, Jeremy is the worst for me. Like I, I hadn't heard even flow in um, a lot in a long time. So I didn't mind those as much, but man, I couldn't even make it through Jeremy. So yeah. burnt on that song. And, and going back to playing in a Pearl Jam cover band, we, we played Jeremy yeah, that and I had to play that bass part on a four string bass, and it's a twelve string bass part. So let's just say I struggled yeah. to play that. <laughs> to get that, doon, 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 doon. yeah. I mean, that's well. It, it was as I said, tricky. If my, what worked part is that the bass playing on this record is is very complex and right high level of skill here. So what I'm saying is, even though I pulled it off, because you know I practiced. I was so yeah. focused on playing it correctly that I never really had to pay attention to the song, quote unquote, and like really yeah. like listen to the lyrics over and over again. Because if mm -hmm. I did, I would have probably gouged my ears out because I mean, it's like it's like Janie's got a gun by Aerosmith. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just you hear it once and I OK, I I get it. I it's not light material. Right. Not that they're writing, you know, pop songs or anything, but on, you know, the next record, it seems like he takes it out of the personal and starts to write story songs. Elderly yeah. woman behind the counter is a story song. Mm -hmm. Daughter is a story song. You know, they're, they, he moves away from making it emo. emo. It's, well, it makes it, it makes it more timeless and universal. Like I can relate yes. to him more if it's not, I'm super specific to only you because I'm not you, <laughs> you know, so it, it has to be broadened somehow to be relatable for somebody, you know, that wasn't a, confused about who their father was.
you know, we have positives and negatives. I do want to point out that when this came out, so Rolling Stone gave it a, a, a good review. Pearl Jam hurdles into the mystic at warp speed, David Frick said, writing a lot of drama out of a few declarative power chords swimming in echo. Okay, they're not all power chords. Um, no, Q- there's very few power chords. That's yeah. Weird, but anyway, okay. Q called it a raucous modern rock album spiked with infectious guitar motifs powered with driving bass and drums. Then they said it may well be the face of 90s metal. <laughs> metal. Um, Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune who I don't always agree with but he said occasionally overwrought and unrelentingly humorless the music nonetheless exerts a hypnotic power at its best that I think comes closest to what I think we're saying whereas there's something special with the musical aspect of this but Vetter is unrelentingly humorless as he puts it now those were the positive which is interesting to hear from a review at the time you know yeah that was sort of what the appeal was of this just wait was it was so counter to what else was going on at the time david brown of entertainment weekly said he found it derivative of fellow northwestern rockers like soundgarden allison chains and the defunct mother love bone and felt it goes to show that just about anything can be harnessed and packaged. The enemy accused Pearl Jam of trying to steal money from young alternative rock, young alternative kids' pockets. Um, he said they were unworthy of comparison to Nirvana and Soundgarden. The Village Voice gave it a B minus, and Robert Christo said. It sounds like a slew of other Seattle albums that modulate the same misguided ethos. He's, he called it San Francisco ballroom music. What the fuck? What are these people talking about? Uh, this is what <laughs> music reviewers that just feel like they need to say something important. But yeah. So I'm what I my point that I'm getting across is it was not universally beloved when it came out. There were people taking shots at this, which, well, you know, he's a Wawa pedal. So, right. But also clearly classic rock, you know, you, you, you look at the Seattle thing that's happening. Allison chains already has an album out with facelift. That's done. Well, it's not, it's not, it didn't like explode the way that this did or not this, but Nirvana did, but it it did pretty well. Soundgarden, same thing. Bad motor finger. They got two nice singles out there with, you know, outshined and um, the other one I'm forgetting. And so you see this band come with this, you know, their brand quote unquote, brand new band. It's a very polished first record and but, you start, it's on a major label and, and people get like, they get their backs up about it being like a sellout record or it's, or it's contrived corporate rocker something like that because like you said there's a wah-wah pedal so if you like if you truly listen to and enjoy rock music there's no way you would think those three bands sound anything alike right other than they use guitars like Mm -hmm. and they're all from the same area style is completely different the guitar playing style is completely different the rhythms are different there's maybe a moment on here 
on one of the quieter songs that just tonally it there was some like probably minor chord choices that remind me a little bit of like Allison Chain's acoustic stuff. But that was it. Like, mm-hmm. It was a fleeting moment. So I, I don't know. I question like what the hell these people are listening to if they think that those three bands sound anything like. Well, and, and you throw Nirvana into the mix. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, totally Nelson Chains don't sound the same. No. Even though they're lumped together. <laughs> Maybe if you've never heard rock music before. <laughs> You're right. I mean, they all have guitars and singers and they play loud. But when you right. break down what they're doing, they're very different bands. Yes. They're they're kind of all in their own genres, to be honest. Yes. Yes. They're just in different splinters of rock music. But you know, this the the sound of this record sounds absolutely nothing like Bad Motor Finger. Or no, or Nevermind. Out of all those records, Nevermind sounds the most polished, and the cleanest, and the and the glossiest of of for radio. Mm-hmm. Um, which is ironic because <laughs> Cobain was not did not like Pearl Jam when they came out. He he said they were. What did he say? Um, I just called them commercial sellouts. I think they I think they patched that up though after that. But you know, Kurt Kurt ran his mouth about some stuff. Looking back, it's now 32 years later. Is this a record that's worth revisiting if you want to understand the 90s? Is is this belong with Nevermind? Belong with other 90s albums? I, I'm gonna put like Jagged Little Pill. I think that's probably one of the touchstones of the nineties. I mean, it has a freaking musical now about it. Yeah. It's definitely one of the most successful albums of the nineties. So does this belong there? I think it does. It, it, um, the unfortunate thing is so many bands after this ripped this mm-hmm. kind of formula off like the, the soft, quiet dynamic they have on this record and especially the vocal style. I mean, I, I had never heard anybody sing like this before I heard this record. I guess, what do I know about music? But when I, when I heard it better sing, I was like, that's not like any singer. I've ever there were some before. comparisons like, to Jim Morrison. That was about it. On? Yeah. But even Jim Morrison, there's like one Jim Morrison, like nobody else right. had sung like Jim Morrison either. You know, we're coming from like an era of tons of Robert Plant style singers. Right. So to go to this direction, I was like, whoa, this is different. This guy sings on like a baritone. Like what? Right. Cause even Cornell was in that era or in that style he was about he was a belter you could say cornell is more derivative than eddie vetter is and i i mean i think cornell's the better singer i'd rather listen to him sing but you Mm -hmm. could make the case of like his lineage to classic rock is much clearer to hear and see right than eddie vetter's Mm -hmm. um so from that aspect alone i mean to understand like where that came from uh, and this is probably the best, obviously the best version of the formula that went on to talk about Matchbox 20. Like they're one of those bands that like tapped into this formula. It doesn't have the nuance and the groove and like all of those elements, which, you know, the jam parts and the blazing guitar solos and the things that make it really exciting, the super cool drum fills and like all the bass accents, like they strip all that out and just dumb it down to like strumming chords and the dynamic structure of the songs and then this style of singing so 
Yeah, it's interesting that like I like I said at the start of the show, my impression is that this album is more important than it probably. I'm talking about like in a mass pop culture sense than it actually is. And the fact that you like you even like present this question, mm-hmm. which I think is valid, had it before I reflected on it though, I would have not even thought to, to ask it, but I think it's a valid question. So I think it's worth, if you're interested in 90s music for sure, or even rock and roll, rock music, because to me, it's one of the pillars of like what the sound is that happened after 92. And I don't even know that I would call this grunge. I know it gets called grunge, but like, it's not really grungy. Um, No, I I have a hard time calling it grunge. It's alternative rock, I guess. Yeah. Um, but to me, grunge, like, okay, Allison Chains, yeah, like Grunt Truck, uh, you know, that end of it, like darker, drop D, um, scuzzier, mud honey. Scuzzier, heavy tones, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this this sound is one of the pillars of, like, what changed in music in 1992. Like, mm-hmm. this is one of the things that changed in a bunch of other bands were inspired and followed it. Nirvana did a thing that a bunch of other bands were inspired by and followed. You know, there's like Nine Inch Nails. There's like, you know, probably half a dozen different distinct sounds that happened or at least broke, finally broke at that time that Mm -hmm. a lot of other bands started following and continue to follow to this day. Um, Maybe they have the least, though, enduring legacy sort of followers oh. like they're their own thing like they tour they do while like but they have the decade follow, uh, following i'm thinking of like as we like listen to new music we often hear like bands that there's a lot of bands doing shoegaze now again right mm-hmm. there's a lot of bands that pop up that try to do the nirvana formula i don't hear personally i haven't heard many new bands pop up that sound anything like this that's true. I mean, there were obviously a ton of bands in the nineties that, you know, the latter half. Yeah. That's they what all I mean. missed like, the point. It almost like burned out. Yeah. You know what I mean, it was like so prevalent that we all got sick of it and don't ever want to hear it again. Right. And, and I think it's because they took the simplest parts, which were the big booming baritone voice. Yeah. Um, some guitar chords and maybe, some lyrics that were on the surface deep, but probably weren't. Yeah. So when you're listening to, you know, seven Mary three or Creed or Nickelback or some of those other bands that kind of imitated that sound, you're just hearing the photocopy version that's started to fade. And it doesn't, it doesn't have the elements Eddie Vedder's background, his upbringing is is a huge part of this record. And you can't replicate that. He was he got a lot out of this record, which is why I think he's so on fire vocally. A lot of this record is because he is unleashing a lot of demons that he held in for a lot of years. Yeah, and I, I and I think the the combination of Jeff Emmett and Stone Gossard for sure 
in this era of playing had a very particular style of riff writing and song structure and mm-hmm. just tone and chord choices. And that sound only exists on this record, the Temple of the Dog record, and the Mother Love Bone stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I've heard, and Brad, to some degree, even though Jeff Amen's not on it, you can hear some of like Stone Gossard is so dominant from a rhythm standpoint that you can hear moments, but it's not the three I mentioned are really the core ones. Like that's it. This is the only time that sound ever existed. As far as I know, Pearl's name has never revisited it and probably never will. And I don't know that any other band has even replicated the dynamic, that sort of formula of how they play together. I don't think it's possible. I think this was such a unique set of circumstances because of where everybody was coming from with Jeff and stone coming yeah. out of the mother love bone situation, Eddie coming from his situation. Like it was just a, a, a very unique set of circumstances for them psychologically and emotionally to put this together. I don't think you can make that happen again. Um, yep. I will say though, <laughs> as much as I like this record, with some reservations when I was ranking my nineties Pearl jam records. So you have this versus Vitology, no code and yield. This isn't in the top three for me. What? In terms of going back and re-listening uh, and enjoying the record. Oh my God. That's, that's crazy. Vitology I, is my the, favorite Pearl jam record. Wow. This is the only record I would even listen to. I don't even know that I would listen to, even though I own Vitology, I listen to it a ton, and I own versions to listen to it a ton. I don't even know that I would go back and listen to those two records. This is the only one I would even give my valuable time to. Your valuable time, jeez. Sorry. <laughs> no, I like the the experimentation and the weirdness of the rawness of of Vitology. It sounds it sounds like a band that was like, we're popular. We have all this cred and, or not cred, but like, um, we have all this goodwill built up. Let's just do what we want. And what they wanted to do was make a weird record. And I appreciate that. Like there are some incredibly catchy songs on that record. And there are some incredibly weird things happening on that album. I also really love No Code. I think that there that's that album has like some amazing hail hail is to me one of the best riffs that stone gossard's ever written it's incredibly cool and complex riff it's delivered uh more like a punk band than uh you know a hard rock band because it's very up tempo but yeah, yeah but I, you can see like the things i'm praising about this record they're not punk no I, punk's the wrong and, word. so it's like I felt like that's what I'm saying. Like the, what I think is so incredibly special about this just never happened again. And obviously I'm in the minority of a lot of the, they have, they do well, they keep selling records. A lot of people love them. Obviously we're reviewing the record because our community loves them, but like there's something special that happened on this, the mother of bone record and on the temple of the dog heard that. Yeah, I agree. It isn't any, in some ways, isn't even in the same ballpark of what the band went on to do. Like it's, so separated other than like Eddie Vedder singing on it to me sounds nothing like this band. I agree with you. I think part of it is it was so overexposed that I just don't need to hear the record again. Yeah, sure. That's why I prefer now versus sits in a weird spot because I do like that record, but there are a lot of songs on that record that I don't like like rats yeah. Yeah. and stuff. 
I mean, there's some leash that th- those stuff like that doesn't work for me. There's some real stinkers. Yes. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's to be expected. You you're out on the road for two years promoting this huge record. And then you got to get back in the studio and make another album real quick. Obviously you've got time to jam while you're out on the road. But if you look at, um, you know, like uh, Dave wrote one of the songs he wrote, I think he wrote go with um, Mike McCready. So like they were just getting ideas from everywhere. Yeah. But that's the one. If so, weirdly, I would put that as five. Like it would be Vitology, No Code, Yield, Ten, and then Verses. Not that I dislike any of the records. I'm just saying the order of which I would want to listen to them, in terms of my interest and my appreciation. I know a lot of people love Verses, and you know it has a lot of great singles. But again, that was also a lot of overplayed songs. I don't need to hear Glorified G again. I've heard it a billion times. Oh, you just gave me in my stomach upset just saying it. And dissident and and oh god, animal played so much. There's there must have been like six singles off of that record. I mean, there was so much on the radio from that. And there was so much anticipation too. It was getting played before. It was I think my memory of it was that Glorified G was getting played before the album was even, which wasn't even a leave. single. Yeah, it got leaked, and it was like just. Played to death. Yeah. Go was the first single. My memory is that it's a super annoying song, too. (laughs) Go was released in October, right when the album came out. Daughter was the second single. Animal was the third single. And Dissident was the fourth single. But if you were to go on the radio, you would have also heard Glorified G, Rearview Mirror, and Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town. So that's seven Mm -hmm. songs that were probably getting played. Also, they recorded the Crazy Mary uh, song that Victoria Williams wrote. That got played a ton because people, again, were just yeah. so hungry for. You're right. Anything. It was, like, it was like nonstop Pearl Jam on the radio. And I was too, because I was buying the European singles. Like, I think I must have bought 10 after it came out, but bef- before Versus came out. That's That's my recollection now, because I remember... There were singles for Dissident that when you bought like all four of them, it can, it was one full concert. There was like three songs on each, three live songs on like each disc, three or four from 1994 or the whole, the whole concert. So yeah, I was fully on board at I guess at point this point with with Pearl Jam when uh when Versus came out. So, but again, I don't remember like 
I don't remember if I bought the album. Like, I don't remember when I bought the album. I clearly bought the album because I was buying the singles, but I can't remember when I bought the album. It's like it. I must have just picked up used at one I of think the when that came out, stores. I was like, that was probably my peak Pearl Jam fandom. So I bought Got it when it. it came out and was like, oh no. And then Vitalogy came out. I was like, I'm going to give it another shot. We'll see. Maybe it was like sophomore slump. And then I got Vitalogy and forced myself to listen to that to a billion times. I was like, you know what? I don't think I like this band. <laughs> um, See, like, I remember, I don't know if you remember this. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap up here in a second. But they played um, Saturday Night Live in 1994. Uh, this is before, this is like spring 94. They play Saturday Night Live. They play Not For You. Not anything off of Versus, which came out the year before. They play a new song and nobody had heard. And um, I was like blown away. I was like, what the, what is going on? Like, going on the internet the early internet like on a you know dot matrix not dot matrix but a, a dos message board like trying to figure out like what was that pearl jam song that they played last night like oh my gosh um and then that ended up being the single for the first single actually not the first single, it was the second single for vitology but point being i was fully immersed in the pearl jam world at that point even though uh, I don't remember when I bought the records. Vitology, I went to the, the midnight sale. Same with No Code. And I bought it on cassette. <laughs> Jay. Wow. I was still buying cassettes at this point. I, I refused to, to join the CD revolution. I thought cassettes were still going to hang on. I remember going to, to Mad Hat or to Finders in Bowling Green. And they had a counter on the right when you walked in. And that's where the new releases were. If you wanted to get the new release at the midnight sale, you just say, I want this. Yeah. And I said, I want Vitology, but I want it on cassette. And the guy looked at me like, <laughs> I have to go in the back and get that, you asshole. <laughs> like, we didn't even put the cassettes out. Who's going to buy a cassette? You are. I think they sold two cassettes that night, and I was one of them. <laughs> I did end up replacing it with a CD eventually. But that might have been the last new cassette I ever bought. Now that I'm thinking back to it. I hope so. <laughs> it's awful late to be buying cassettes. Jeez. I, you know, I still had my my yellow Walkman from 1989 or whatever it was or 1988. I had to keep pumping in the tunes. I was still making mixed cassettes in like 92, 93. Yeah. Well, well yeah, 92, 93 for sure. 94. What year were you talking about? No, ninety four. I guess I was still yeah ninety four. Yeah, you know, I guess I was still. I still guess that's ninety four. Thought you were like later in the nineties. I'm. I yeah. Yeah. Uh. So, were the album better EP, decent single? Where do you land? It's a worthy album. I mean. I don't love porch. Uh, deep sounds like a. There's probably a one of those B sides that would have been better on the record than that. Mm -hmm. That one's the one that feels most grunge. I'm doing air quotes. There's not yeah. a video. 
I don't need to hear Jeremy ever again in my life. Mm-mm. Other than that, the rest of the album is, um, I think it, it obviously an important record. And like I said, it captures a sound. It only exists in a very small set of recordings and uh, not a lot of people ever have uh, copied. So for nothing else, I enjoyed l- revisiting it for that reason to just, I mean, I'm a huge Bottle of Bone fan and I, I love that Temple of the Dog record too. So it just, to me, it fits in that triumvirate of, uh, of releases. I agree with you. I'm going to admit something. I've never been a huge fan of the Temple of the Dog record. Not that I dislike it. I just never gotten into it. Like it just oh, has wow. never clicked with me. I like some of the songs. Yeah. But it just has, it just never like wormed its way in the way that Pearl Jam and um, Mother Love Bone did. Maybe I need to revisit it. Maybe somebody should suggest it and we can revisit it for the podcast. Actually, I'm has it been another spin? I think you'll be. I mean, Chris Cornell on that record is just phenomenal. I mean, I know the singles. I know like Hunger Strike and there's some, some really the cool groove, groove songs on there too. Pushing Forward Back is a good one. There's a lot of cool stuff. Wooden Jesus is another good one. I remember Wooden Jesus. Times of Trouble, obviously. I don't. All uh, Night Thing. Do you know All Night Thing? I remember All Night Thing. Some classic Chris Cornell stuff on there. I Yeah. I just, I don't know why it just has never. Trying to think well, of get on it. Say hello to heaven. I remember that song. Yeah. That's a good yeah. one. So I mean, I I like half the record. I just need to listen to the rest of the record. And that's why they ended up getting Rick per- Parishar, by the way, for 10, because he produced the Temple of the Dog record. Oh, okay. That's yeah, it the sounds connection. Similar. So we need to thank our patrons for picking this record for our second diamond poll. Thoroughly crushing Green Day and Matchbox 20 eventually we're going to get to them so you might have stopped them for now but we're we're coming for you dookie and and whatever the matchbox 20 album title is it's well, yourself or are, someone like you that's what it is are, we call these the diamond episodes but i think most people who come to this podcast expecting to hear 90s music would just call these the albums that we should be reviewing right <laughs> <laughs> i mean we think it's a special thing because we usually do things that are much more buried than this, but uh, general music fans think like, wait, you just review your, how many episodes in 6,000 episodes and you finally reviewed Pearl Jam? 600, not 6,000. Jesus Christ. If we were doing five minute episodes, we'd have 6,000. Well, that's um, we do a nineties podcast and it took us over 600 episodes to even get to Pearl Jam. Yeah. And we haven't touched smashing pumpkins yet. We haven't done, Allison Chains, red, red hot chili peppers, red hot chili peppers. We've done Nirvana this. twice. Yeah. So I mean that kind of, but um, yeah, Green Day, no Green Day, no Offspring. Yeah, it's kind of kind of proud of it actually. To be honest, I am too. We're thwarting the expectations. If you would like to help us thwart expectations, you can join us at the DMO uh, Union, which you can find at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com, when you join, you get to vote in polls like this one for our monthly album tournaments in which 18 albums over two polls are whittled down to four. And from that, a winner is chosen. All those albums are suggested at digmeoutpodcast.com. 
It's also where you can go to sign up for the box newsletter. It's a newsletter of new releases for eighties, nineties and aughts music books, uh, documentaries, TV shows, movies, etc. Anything that falls under the umbrella of what we cover on this podcast, plus reviews every week. And lastly, Apple Podcasts is where you go to leave positive feedback for the show. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. See you next week. Nope, that's not what I'm supposed to say. What do I say? I just completely blanked on my on my closing comment. What do I say, Jay? You say we'll see you next week on another episode of Dig Me Out. Do we say see you? But I don't see you. I mean, I don't see them. I, I see you. Why am I having existential crisis about this? <laughs> and we're back with another episode of Dig Me Out. There that's what know. it is. Okay. Yeah. Let me, yeah, yeah. Let me fix that. Okay. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out.